I'm Ino Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Elijah Shinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so we're going to do today's show a little bit differently. It's uh, sadly a low point for the, the justice system um, and for the rule of law in this country. Um, so we're going to to give these topics what they deserve. We're going to do two longer segments. Um, first on the Trump indictment, obviously, which is the news of the week. Um, and then we're going to to talk about the Douglas Mackey conviction. I think perhaps not of, of equal weight in the sense that the Trump conviction is um, obviously has much broader political uh, sort of ramifications for the existence of the Republic. Um, but I think the, the Mackey case incredibly important as well for the existence of, of uh, the, the First Amendment and the ability to talk about these public uh, these these discussions publicly. So we're going to have a lot more time for those two. I think they deserve it. And then we're going to close um, with the importance of the two religious holidays that are being observed this week. Um, so with that, uh, I'll, I'll toss it over, um, toss it over and let's let's kick it off with the Trump indictment. Okay, so we are recording this on Tuesday, April 4th, which is the day of Donald Trump's arraignment in New York court. As things literally currently stand, uh, he has not been formally arraigned yet, so we can only technically speculate as to the nature of the charges, but we have good reason to believe that there will be approximately 34 counts on this indictment that we have had reason to believe would happen for many weeks now and here is the moment it is it is finally here and it's a little surreal and i i guess i want to just briefly begin by discussing again we haven't seen the arraignment yet we we work still in kind of a quasi speculatory mode but we have good reason to believe that the new york state misdemeanor offense that the soros funded rogue manhattan new york prosecutor alvin bragg is pursuing charges on is a falsification of business records charge pertaining to the so-called quote-unquote hush money payments that Trump allegedly directed his former lawyer and now convicted felon Michael Cohen to pay to former porn star Stormy Daniels prior to the 2016 presidential election. Hard to say that whole sentence without cracking a smile. There's obviously a merry misfit of characters involved in, in this whole <laughs> sordid affair. And this is a this is a misdemeanor offense. First thing out of the gate that is worth noting from a legal or technical perspective is that the falsification of business records misdemeanor in New York State has a built-in statute of limitations of only two years. So, in other words, if the underlying conduct happened uh, allegedly before the 2016 presidential election, the statute of limitations would have told in roughly 2018. Now, to make matters a little worse. Alvin Bragg is trying to elevate the misdemeanor to a felony offense because he is trying to show, to demonstrate to the jury that we may get to, that this alleged falsification of business record was made in furtherance of an additional crime. Now, the what is the additional crime? Well, the additional alleged crime would be a violation of United States federal campaign finance laws because it was improperly recorded. And the allegation is that this payment was made for sole political purposes of benefiting the 2016 Trump campaign against Hillary Clinton. There are multiple glaring obvious problems here too. First thing right out of the game is that Michael Cohen himself, who allegedly is one of Alvin Bragg's star witnesses, has testified, has testified that that was not 
the reason that Donald Trump directed him to make this payment. Rather, according to Michael Cohen's own words, Trump directed Michael Cohen to make this payment for purposes of sparing his family embarrassment. And as Cohen has also testified, he has publicly he has said this. He has said that that was the reason, that was the nature that this was all kind of furtive and under the radar was it was trying to kind of hide it to spare Trump's family the embarrassment. So that right out of the gate would not make it um, under the kind of statutory jurisdiction of the underlying federal campaign finance law. The other thing to note here, this also has a five-year statute of limitations. So this would have expired in 2021. They would have told, um, you know, a year and a half, two years ago now. And there's obviously also the fact that Alvin Bragg is a county district attorney, and it is dubious at best, likely just frankly egregious, more likely just egregious, that a county attorney is trying to kind of elevate a misdemeanor to a felony on an on furtherance uh, mechanism by invoking a federal law. He has no jurisdiction to do that, uh, plain and simple. That is, so, so there, are, there, there are too many issues here to even try to count. If you think back, Alvin Bragg's predecessor, Cy Vance Jr., who himself is quite the Democratic Party partisan hack, Cy Vance Jr. looked into this. He ultimately dismissed it. He said it would be fruitless. Federal prosecutors have done the same thing. Nonetheless, Alvin Bragg explicitly ran in true kind of Stalin-esque, you know, show me the man, I will show you the crime fashion. Alvin Bragg literally ran for New York County, New York District Attorney on a get Trump by any means necessary platform. That helped him collect a million dollars from a Soros-funded, quote-unquote, reform prosecutor network. And here we are. And, and, and here we are. And it is just absolutely appalling. It is, it is a true – this is kind of an overused, overwrought phrase to an extent, but it is a legitimate crossing of the Rubicon from which I do not think we will ever go back. I mean, think back to all the – various presidents in the in United States history who did any number of actions in their private lives that likely were indictable or outright criminal offenses. I mean, Bill Clinton, are you kidding me? I mean, John F. Kennedy, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, think back to the 19th century. I mean, this is a legitimate first, and I do not think that it would be overstating it to say that it, that it is banana republic. Like, I really don't. I mean, if you think back to the fact that the current regime at both the federal level, that was Merrick Garland kind of sicking the FBI to do that pre-dawn raid in Mar-a-Lago last August, as well as at the local level, the ruling regnant Democratic Party prosecutorial apparatus regime in cahoots with the intelligence community and the deep state and all of that is literally trying to persecute the former president, which it defeated, who is a leading candidate for the next presidential election. It is a, it is just a absolutely galling, galling, galling thing here. I guess that, you know, the very final thing that I'll say, and then I'll kind of kick it open to the group for our extended discussion on this very low moment in the history of this increasingly late stage republic, it seems. The final note that I will just say is kind of a brief uh, point on the political ramifications of it. So Trump's lead in the hypothetical prospective 2024 polls, I say hypothetical because we obviously don't have a full field yet. Those, those, his lead in those polls has definitely only increased over recent weeks and the fundraising numbers um, ha have been very prolific for Trump, you know, query whether he partially kind of wants this to an extent. Um, some people have reported that he had these, you know, fantasies of kind of the perp walk and all of that. All that may or may not be true. Um, I, I don't pretend to have any inside information on that. It does seem to me like Trump does love playing the role of victim and martyr. But that doesn't mean that any of this is anything other than just awful. Uh, just awful, plain and simple. It is awful, awful for the country. 
And, you know, people on this podcast are probably tired of me hearing it, but I continue to think that the only way to get through this mess is to go through it. And, you know, there's absolutely no reason why, you know, some very red area in the, in the Oklahoma panhandle or West Texas, you know, might get like an ambitious prosecutor there to try to get a grand jury to indict kind of an Anthony Fauci or a Hunter Biden figure just to try to balance the pendulum out. But it's sad that that is where we are. Um, and I'll kick it open to you guys on that note, I guess. So uh, I can hop in. I wrote at length about this kind of my quick gut reaction uh, for Epic Times. So. Uh, do check that out for a fuller accounting of my view on this. Everything that Josh has said on the legal aspects of this, you know, I think he's characterized rightly. It's a beyond flawed case, a bastardized case that would never be brought and should never be brought uh, were we a different country. But I, I believe that today we are a different country. When we talk about Rubicon crossing moment, I think from my perspective, the most poignant aspect of this, the most demoralizing aspect of this, is not the way in which the law is tortured or the, you know, obvious massive issues with the fact that every single other authority who hates Trump refused to bring this case or that this is the culmination of fever dreams of years from an evil resistance that has run roughshod over norms, I put that in air quotes, but truly norms, values, principles and the laws of this country, but is that this can never be undone. Once a ruling party locks up or attempts to lock up the leader of the opposition, past or present, that puts us in third world territory and it can never be undone. So the, the notion of the tit for tat, for example, I agree that would be a way to at minimum deter such behavior, but that's only a temporary remedy because once this precedent has been set and it is being set today, it can never be undone. There will always be the looming possibility of attempts to lock up the opposition, making up crimes as they go along. And, and let's note, by the way, the irony here is the bad orange man who is supposed to be so flawed and have so many shady dealings has been the most investigated person in the history probably of the world by the most invasive types of security apparatus agencies here. And all they can do is come up with contrived crimes. Every single one of these prosecutions ongoing right now, persecutions ongoing, is illegitimate. There's not merit to these cases. So it's all about show me the man and I'll show you the crime. It's rule by law, not rule of law. And I don't think we can come back from this, quite frankly. Uh, as sad as that is, we are living today, in my view, in a different country than the one that came before it. Our children and grandchildren will never know what America once was. And this third world tendency will always be looming in the background. And on the tit for tat point, and I make this point at some length in my Epic Times piece, you know, the thing that's very disturbing about the idea of you know, th th whether or not that is even possible is consider that Trump was impeached twice on baseless grounds, and no one has even talked about impeaching Joe Biden. Now, even if you say that there's no political will to impeach Joe Biden, that it would backfire on Republicans, et cetera, there's an infinite number of high crimes and misdemeanors you can argue that he's been engaged in, and certainly relative to the ones that Trump in engaged in. So why haven't Republicans brought it? Maybe they don't have the fire in the belly for it. Maybe they don't know what time it is. Maybe they don't believe that compelled to make the argument to the American people that it is justifiable. 
But I think the notion of tit for tat, yes, maybe there will be some ambitious lower level officials who will bring legal cases and we will engage in some kind of equivalent lawfare. But I, I am very dubious of the idea that any tit for tat is going to be engaged in, at least with this crop of Republican leadership, given we can't even impeach, not even one Biden official is impeached. Think about that. The Republican president gets impeached twice on the most baseless of grounds, totally destroying the norm about impeachment, by the way. And not one Biden official is facing impeachment with a Republican controlled House. I think that says it all about the lack of courage, the lack of knowing what time it is, or that we're really controlled by a uniparty. And there is simply no one on our side representing us with any sort of sway, at least at the federal level. I'll say, um, you know, the, oh, sorry, Inez, I was just going to say, I really do concur with Ben's point that today is pivotal in the history of the country that people who grow up in a a country that does this um, have a ha, will have a very different concept of of the country itself of the constitution um, than everyone else who came before and is looking at today as such a strange moment. There are a lot of people on the left right now making the nobody is above the law argument. Um, not people that were excited to make that argument when it came to Hillary Clinton, not people who were excited to make that argument when it came to Hunter Biden. There's obviously hypocrisy going back and forth, left and right. Um, but this is really the beginning. This is the tip of, an, of the iceberg because we have char charges coming out of Georgia. We have charges uh, potentially coming from a special counsel. And uh, there was a little tidbit in Axios this morning that said Trump may look at this case. Uh, he may a year from now yearn for the days when he was just facing down Alvin Bragg. That's not cute. I mean, right? Like there's something true about it. Obviously, it's absolutely true that this case may turn out to be small potatoes. It will definitely just be the tip of the iceberg going forward. Um, but it's not particularly cute to suggest that uh, Donald Trump is just, you know, starting to get a taste of the medicine that's coming for him because to Ben's point and to Josh's point, um, none of it is the kind of stuff you would lock up or arrest a president, a former president of the United States over on a novel legal theory. I mean, if you're going to do it, you should have something pretty solid to do it on, um, maybe like mishandling of uh, classified information on a private server would be a place to start. But uh, we we haven't done that. And we're continuing to just scrape the bottom of the barrel uh, by the folks who complain the most about the death of our democracy. Um, they never believed in any of that ever. Um, they don't believe in any of it. Uh, I don't know that the American people really believe in any of it uh, with consensus. I think there are a lot of the American people who have a common sense sort of point on this. Um, but I don't think that the country as a whole has a consensus on what a constitutional republic should look like when they use the democracy. Um, so I'll kick it over to you, Inez. Yeah, I think it's worth, before we wrap this segment, talking about why this is such a banana republic norm because we kind of point to we've been pointing to it i think rightly since the raid in, at mar-a-lago as a banana republic move but there's a reason why this kind of stuff tends to lead into being a banana republic and that's the incentive not to leave office right this is how dictatorships are born and they were very open um all of these these main players from you know Bragg being elected on it to you know sort of the the Intel and deep state type folks talking about they were very open about the fact that they would not allow Donald Trump to live out his life after the presidency in peace. 
right? They were going to go after him for all of this ticky tack stuff. I mean, some of these, the, I think you, you've all pointed out rightly that some of the, especially this initial case is really like really thin stuff, right? A, a novel legal theory over what is essentially a, a bookkeeping error that turns on the motive of the president, whether he wants to pay off Stormy Daniels to keep it from his wife or whether he did it for the campaign, right? This, this kind of stuff, um, you know, so the reason that, 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 that uh, this leads to a sort of banana republic situation is, of course, the incentive is not to leave office. The incentive is never to abandon power. When when the opposition, the incoming opposition, um, in a in a you know peaceful transfer of power, makes it clear that they're going to prosecute you after you leave office, the incentive is to stay in office. That's why those dictatorships are born, right? Um, I pointed out during the the Mar-a-Lago. Um, situation in the raid, which I really think kicked off this new era of American politics. I think that Emily is right to point to that. Um, it, it, if, if you think about like all of it, obviously, we're not going to have the conversation about what happened to the Roman Republic. And obviously, there were many, many different influences here. But one of the, the, the pieces in the calculation of actually crossing the Rubicon, literally this metaphor we keep using, is that Caesar was open to prosecution once he he lost his office, right? Um, it opened him for prosecution and forced his hand in a particular sense. Now, obviously, there are lots of other factors there, but um, I think it's important to underline why this stuff leads to dictatorships um, and why you end up having, you know, sort of one tin, tin pot dictator after another when you start these kinds of precedents. And I agree with Ben that uh, this precedent is is impossible to undo, right? There are certain things we can do to push against it, but that precedent will remain of indicting the political opposition in the United States. Um, and finally, a note on above the law, which I've seen, uh, I, I've said a few times, um, Basically, there was a trade-off made, and that's that the handful of presidents who, former presidents who are still living, right, um, usually no more than five or six uh, at any given time. Yes, the standard means that it is so devastating to the republic to produce this kind of political indictment that, yes, sometimes uh, I'm sure that former presidents uh, and, and presidents, indeed, have gotten away with some some low-level swamp behavior uh, that might have jailed the ordinary citizen. This is difficult to accept because we like to think that the law applies equally to everybody, but the consequences of indicting the political opposition are so much worse than, you know, Donald Trump getting away with a bookkeeping error um, or any president. And and the, the field is rich in terms of, like, the number of politicians and powerful people who engage in this sort of behavior. Um, and then finally about the above the law, let's not forget, uh, let's not forget two things. One, Donald Trump himself recognized, and Trump is by no means a sort of sober-minded guy who always puts the interests of the country above his personal interests, right? I think that that's, that's a clear, uh, statement about the man's character, but even Donald Trump recognized that, quote, locking her up was going to be too divisive and bad for the country, Right. He made all those chants and the promises and he explicitly went back on it once he got into office because he said it would be too divisive and damaging for the country. He was right. He's still right about that. Um, and and uh, finally, I mean, in terms of the above the law stuff, New York City is a sanctuary city. So there is a statute on the books that says that that some people are above the law. So this is not even about like Democrats versus Republicans being above the law. They are explicitly have 
created a statute that says that that certain crimes will not be prosecuted. And that's not to mention the fact that Alvin Bragg, as a, a matter of prosecutorial discretion as um, standard, is not prosecuting all of the crimes in, in a crime-ridden city at this point, right? But I think the fact that there's a statute on the books that formally announces that there's a category of people who are above the law makes the, the sort of above the law comments ridiculous. Um, and then in terms of politics, and I know we're, we're running a bit long, so I'll transition transition to the next segment. But in terms of politics, Donald Trump is always best when he is essentially being persecuted by a corrupt system. Politically, that is best for him. That is why he's, you know, practically tap dancing his way into this indictment. Um, it's because it gives him the most powerful argument he's got. Nobody even the most diehard Trump supporters, nobody thinks that Donald Trump has lived like a squeaky clean life. Even in the primaries in 2016 and 2015, he basically said, yeah, I'm corrupt. I'm part of the powerful corrupt system, but that's the reason I can fix it. I know how it works. I, I have seen behind the curtain and I'm reporting back to you, the people that yes, the game is rigged and the people in power are screwing you. That is exactly Donald Trump's sweet spot politically. And that's why I do think this will help him. Although I don't think we know how it will affect the election. It's just too long from now to, to, to tell, but I do think it helps him politically, at least short term. Um, so moving on to our second long segment, um, we're going to be continuing to talk about uh, the, the destruction of the rule of law uh, in the United States of America. So uh, last Friday, um, also in New York, a jury convicted Douglas Mackey, also known as Ricky Vaughn, for uh, for, for a meme that he posted, uh, which told Hillary voters to text their votes um, or vote, I think, on, on Super Wednesday, right? Text your votes. It's valid. Vote on Super Wednesday. It's an obvious joke, a meme. Um, you know, the I've, I've seen. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm sure you've seen this as well. Since since sort of uh, the advent of social media, every single election, I've seen these kinds of jokes like Democrats vote Wednesday, Republicans, you know, um, text your vote, right, uh, or or whatever, post your tweet vote. Um, I've seen these kinds of jokes. It's usually the purpose is to say how stupid the other side is, right? There's always the possibility with any joke or satire that some dumb person will take it seriously. Um, but th this is a very clear also, um, I wouldn't call it a Rubicon, but a very clear divide in the United States of America and, and in our legal system that is well worth taking, um, if not equally, almost equally seriously as, as this Trump indictment. Um, we talk a lot about how private censorship and this kind of collusion between uh, administrative agencies and the government and, and companies like Twitter or Facebook works. And that is its own very serious problem that we've discussed over and over again. But one thing that we haven't really had in America, and it's thanks to the strong language of the First Amendment, we haven't had really a lot of direct government censorship of speech. Um, it is hard to get around the First Amendment in America. That's why, you know, some of this this uh, sort of public-private partnership is quote-unquote necessary in order to do the job of censorship, as opposed to a place like the UK where, you know, you can, you can criminalize hate speech, right? Um, so those protections are quite broad. And here um, we see courts stepping very clearly into the First Amendment protected speech. So the statute um, that Mackey was indicted under is actually a statute, I, I believe, meant to uh, prosecute voter intimidation by the KKK, right? So, um, you know, basically it's designed to prosecute people who are, are burning crosses on Black voters' lawns, not people who have posted a, a, a rinky-dink meme on Twitter about voting by text. 
Um, but the statute is broad. It talks about uh, you either injuring or oppressing any constitutional right if if and it has not ever been interpreted this broadly. So but theoretically, if this meme qualifies, right, any false statement that might injure or oppress somebody uh, or change their vote could theoretically lose First Amendment protection, right? And we can only imagine how the, the whole disinformation uh, sort of czars and, and regime will use this kind of a standard, right? Anything that spreads, quote unquote, false information that might uh, change somebody's vote. I mean, that that's the whole of political speech right there. And I think that's, that's why um, this case is so incredibly dangerous. And then, and finally, there's the lag time here and the intimidation and chilling factor. Uh, this is a meme that, notice, it's about Hillary, right? Um, this is from the 2016 election. Mackey was arrested five years later in 2021. Um, and he was arrested, by the way, with a raid on his home. Um, so five years later, you post a meme on the internet. Five years later, the goon squad busts through your door and arrests you and charges you under this vague statute for for uh you know for for basically making a joke on the internet um and before i kick it out to you i would say one more thing about it and that is that there's been i've been quite disappointed i mean i guess it's not that much of a surprise but i have not and maybe it's it's yet to come maybe that maybe the adf is sort of spinning up to to take this case this is a monumental case there has not been as much chatter in the right wing legal circles about it perhaps because ricky vaughn was you know it posted some unsavory stuff and is sort of part of the alt right or whatever all of these things are irrelevant to this case right but um the 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 sort of professional legal right has not yet really seized on this case as the important uh, precedent-setting case that I think it's likely to be as it goes through the appeals process. Um, by the way, the guy's facing 10 years in prison. So, you know, up to 10 years in prison for posting a meme on the internet. And with that, I'll kick it out to you three. Well, let's also note, uh, since this was a Hillary meme, and this is in some sense Hillary getting revenge, that Hillary Clinton herself and the Obama administration, let's not forget, also blamed the Benghazi attack on a Coptic Christian's film. You have to think back in history now. And he ended up being prosecuted for, I guess, apparently violating probation for having made that film. So there's a long and rich history here of those who dare to post anything that runs afoul of Hillary Clinton and the ruling regime's wishes getting railroaded to the nth degree. Um, and, and so I think that history is worth noting here. Also note, I, I would point out that this is kind of, this is of a piece and consistent with the indictment of Trump in that this is really the criminalization of speech. This is thought crimes now are real crimes in America. That is the end takeaway from this. Even if on appeal, ultimately Douglas Mackey prevails, the bottom line is, that now everyone has to think twice before they post a meme because that meme could be perceived to be creating harm for someone and some prosecutor somewhere can find an excuse to find some law that justifies probing you if you run afoul on any of a million on a growing list of issues here. And, and in some ways, this is kind of the other side of the coin of authorities withholding the transgender shooters manifesto. You're not allowed to handle the truth if it's quote unquote harmful. And this fits in perfectly to your point, Inez, with 
the moral panic that's been blown over mis, dis, and malinformation and how this has been used to say that wrong think creates a danger or the potential for a danger. So if you say something and someone acts and there can be a link drawn between what was said and the actions of someone else, you might end up facing a criminal liability for that. This is where we are now. The threat is always there, which, which puts a chill over speech in and of itself. It's a prior restraint on speech. And now you can't meme freely. You can't express yourself freely because you're gonna run the risk potentially of some out of control, zealous, ruling regime prosecutor coming after you, the FBI coming down on you incredibly hard. And let's note also that there are rumors of a potential gag order in connection with the Trump prosecution, which would be a further infringement on the First Amendment right to speech of a candidate right now for the highest office on the land who, as Josh noted, is winning in the polls. But even if he wasn't, and even if these are the most unsavory possible characters you can find, the bottom line is that in eviscerating the rule of law over these principles, we're a different country today. I think this is a Rubicon crossing moment as well, because it shows you that you can't speak freely or you risk being criminalized for it. So uh, I have never like adopted this case as kind of like my my cause celebre, so to speak, um, for the very simple reason that I am not a free speech absolutist. And I do think that the underlying moral vileness of what was tweeted from the Ricky Vaughn account in 2016 has some bearing, at least on the vehemence with which I should suddenly kind of rescue to Mr. Mackey's defense. Um, having said that, having said that, and this is like a big caveat, obviously, we now have ample evidence to see how the regime operates when it comes to this sort of thing. And we have lots and lots and lots of anecdotal and empirical evidence to sustain the notion that it never stops with the most vile of characters. I mean, think back to 2017, I think it was when Twitter first banned Alex Jones. I mean, we know where this goes. I mean, so it is very, very easy to foresee where this goes. And it obviously goes to a very dark place. Uh, one other thing to note here, I'm not sure if it's been raised yet, you know, Mackie was not the only person who was kind of putting on social media memes with what you might call, quote unquote, disinformation about kind of voting locations or texting or phone calls, whatever. There were many, many people on the left who were trying to do so to Trump voters as well. And best I can tell, I have not seen a single notable prosecution of those Hillary Clinton supporters who were putting on social media blatant disinformation, trying to kind of dupe you know, those those easily bamboozled kind of Trump supporting rubes out in the hinterlands back in 2016. So um, obviously, from that perspective, it's just yet another kind of notch in our very clearly uh, escalating or de-escalating, depending on, on your perspective, two-tier system of justice. Um, it obviously is a, a politically charged, a, a, a weaponized prosecution. I mean, up to 10 years in jail is just utterly, utterly gobsmacking for something of this nature. Um, it, it is frankly just un-American. I'm not really sure how else to say it. Um, I mean, you, you, you can be a free speech absolutist. You cannot be a free speech absolutist. Um, you know, you could have been like a Jeffersonian, a Hamiltonian, whatever. None of that matters. Um, I mean, we should be able to kind of agree, at least in theory, um, that putting someone behind bars for 10 years for tweeting out something of this nature really, really, really ought to be beyond the pale. And, you know, yet again, like, you know, in closing, I guess the crossing of the Rubicon is the theme of this show today. Um, it's, it's a very appropriate leitmotif and an appropriate theme of this show. But I really do hope that um, this story kind of in tandem with the objectively bigger story, I would say, which is obviously the Donald Trump diamond news, 
ideally, hopefully, um, you know, it definitely will kind of red pill some folks on our side as to understanding to kind of use another kind of overwrought leitmotif, so to speak, what time it is. And then we all know my take at this point on the appropriate remedy at that point. I don't have um, too much to add because I agree with most of what's been said, but to Josh's point, it's becoming impossible to do what the ACLU used to do in Skokie and defend the rights of people uh, behaving badly and to defend them or to argue on behalf of their protection um, for, for the rule of law to protect them, basically for a system to protect them. And, and no system will ever be perfect. Obviously, we're, it's, it's, imper it's impossible to create a system of government that is fully um, foolproof, totally safeguarded against partisan abuses. There's just almost no way to do that. It's human nature and you know we can mitigate uh, the influence of the, the mal influence of human nature um, when it's so inclined uh, the, as best we can. And that's why our system is great, but we can't completely prevent it. So there's always gonna be some degree of this and there always has been some degree of this, but what hasn't happened is this complete acceptance and cheerleading for it in the mainstream of our political establishment, that the media is so completely incurious and non-skeptical about what's happening is fundamentally what has allowed the government to get away with this time and time and again, if the American people actually knew. And the same thing is true with the Alvin Bragg case, just to bring things full circle here. If the American people actually knew how ludicrous this was because the vast majority of media voices were uh, speaking actual truth, if they were reflecting the facts of the case accurately, their point, the, 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 they would be communicating um, that, you know, most legal scholars find this to be bunk, find this to be nonsense. That's what would be reflected in the media criticism because it would broadly reflect, reflect the truth. Because we are not in a time when the media operates that way, and because they continue to have this nonsense pretense of objectivity, um, the American people truly don't know what to think. And that's not to say some people obviously don't see this for what it is, um, but a lot of people aren't getting good information, period. Um, and the same thing goes for Mackie. They might not even be hearing about it. And if they are hearing about it, it's uh, cheerleading for the government uh, cracking down on stuff like this. So it's I, I fundamentally think. Uh, this will has always existed in government. We've seen it with J. Edgar Hoover. He courted plenty of people in the media, but when the church committee um, and others basically unraveled his career and exposed the, uh, the, the things right now, uh, or the, the things then that were uncovered, uh, we look back on that time as, as a good time of like muckraking journalism. We look back on it as a time, I mean, look at Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers. Obviously these people had criticisms ideologically, um, but we look back on them as people who were doing the right thing for the sake of the country. They were curtailing abuses of power. And, and now journalists uh, just really have no interest in it. And um, that's really hard for the American public to, uh, to render judgments on politicians, to make their voices heard at the ballot box, to make their voices heard, period, um, especially because there's a chilling effect to all of this, too. So that, that's that's my take. And uh, with all of that, all of the uh, very depressing uh, news for, for the United States this week, we're, we're going to close out with a segment on uh, the fact that it is also, of course, Easter week um, as well as Passover. Uh, so we're, we're going to close out with a segment on that to, to try to lift up our spirits after uh, after talking about the state of the world.
Okay, so on that note, I guess we'll move from the crossing of the Rubicon to the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> and this conversation, I guess, in some ways is really consistent with NatCon's sort of contrarian nature and the notion that there's things that are deeper and more fundamental than politics in the secular world, which we often sort of touch on you know, sort of tertiarily or secondarily, um, but we'll bring a little bit more to the forefront. And, you know, this is a little bit outside my comfort zone because like probably some others on this podcast as well, you know, I typically tend to keep my faith to myself and I'm private by nature. Uh, but given that I was asked to lead uh, or given the opportunity to lead a Seder this year and I deferred to my elders, the price that I pay for that is instead speechifying for uh, my co-hosts and thousands of you all out there. So uh, hopefully I don't muck it up too much in speaking about what I see as kind of the significance or relevance of this holiday. And I should note, you know, in talking about this prior to us coming on today, Josh expressed a point that I think is an important one, and I'm sure he'll elaborate on, which is that uh, there's a tendency to try to universalize when it comes to all manner of holidays, those which in many instances are particularistic and they have a specific meaning for specific people. And I don't want to cheapen or in any way sort of misrepresent Passover as anything but that which it is here. I do think, however, that there are themes or threads that are raised by this holiday that do widely resonate and are worth ruminating on for a little bit. So uh, at risk of universalizing, but in attempting not to, uh, I would raise a, a few points about this holiday that I think are, are worthwhile ones. Um, among them are, first of all, the idea that one of the things that this holiday asks us to do is think back and I think show reverence and respect for those who have made ultimate sacrifices to come before us. You know, there's obviously the literal story of Passover here of an enslaved people constantly tortured and promised that they will be freed, not being freed, uh, and then ultimately miraculously able to escape uh, and then facing more hardship to come for decades thereafter. Uh, but obviously, you know, more broadly, I think there ought to be a respect for, first of all, how fragile freedom is, and second of all, the sacrifices made to get us to a particular point. And oftentimes we don't show enough reverence and respect, I think, for ancestors, but it's part of humility. And it's also uh, a, a part of an appreciation that I think is essential uh, in our lives. Uh, beyond that, uh, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh was plagued literally with plagues, as were the Egyptians. And I think this reflects a theme, an important theme, which is that if you lie and deceive, if you act immorally uh, and violate nature, essentially, you will pay a price for it. It's not clear necessarily whether you'll pay a price for it uh, in your own personal life or in taking a material hit or a legal hit or beyond that. But always and everywhere, when we lie and deceive, ultimately, there is a price to be paid for it. And I think that shows in the story of Passover. Uh, beyond that, uh, another third point that I think is really essential that I often return to in writing and thinking is that tyranny is almost always and everywhere among all peoples the norm. And I don't think we necessarily stop and think about that enough. We're a relatively young country in America. Uh, we take for granted that which we've been bequeathed 
in a lot of ways, but this is not the norm. Even the banana republic, which we have now entered, as we've argued in this episode, is still probably better than what 99.99% of the people have lived with in 99.99% of the places throughout 99.99% of history of mankind. So you know, to that end, liberty and real justice is by no means the norm. It's the great exception. It's incredibly fragile. It rests upon the very virtues, the values and principles inherent to Judeo-Christian faith and our heritage. And that heritage is baked into this very special and fragile structure that we have. That structure has proven durable. But obviously, if we reject that which we've been bequeathed, it all ultimately falls apart. And I, I don't mean to cheapen the significance of the holiday or any of these holidays by trying to draw you know, parallels with what we're experiencing today. I think obviously we're often at risk of doing so. And you know we kind of have our blinders on as to what we see going on in the world and how we interpret it relative to these much broader and deeper themes. Uh, but I do think it's worth noting, again, how fragile liberty is and that tyranny is kind of the norm everywhere. Last point I'll make, and this is more uh, you know, kind of separate and apart from the secular and political threads that we can maybe tie this holiday to, is that there's the external slavery is a consideration of Passover, but there's also the symbolism of our internal slavery, which is we are slaves to our appetites. We are slaves to our fears, our obsessions, our ambitions, uh, and the mundane necessities of our lives. But a significant part of this holiday, at least as I've seen and interpreted and, I, and it resonates, is the idea that this is about transcending uh, all of those things to which we are slave to. So there's an element of self-liberation here, which does not mean libertinism, but there's an element of self-liberation transcending the material and part of this holiday is you know giving up on the normal foods and comforts that we normally have you know for several days uh, but beyond that it's 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 about being free not just as a people but internally and if you're not free internally you probably will not be a free free as a people either and obviously traditional morality and virtue and faith is inherent to that liberty not libertinism so those are just some thoughts that I had about it. I know Josh has a particular view as well, and I'm more than happy to open it up to everyone else. Again, usually we don't go down these sorts of paths, but I think it's a nice change of pace and important to step aside for a moment from uh, the horrors going on in our, everyday, in our everyday existence as a country to focus on that, which is transcendent and deeper and more powerful. So I will give my little uh, Devar Pesach, so to speak, uh, in parting shots. I want Emily to have time to talk about Easter. Oh, I was going to say it would make sense for, for Josh to follow up on that, but I can definitely do Easter right now. Um, it, this is everyone celebrating Easter. He has risen. Um, I think this is a wonderful conversation for us to have from these two different faith perspectives. Um, I was talking yesterday uh, in a, a Federalist Radio Hour podcast about how we're not used to we're mostly all millennials here we're all millennials here we're not used to um the this america we're not used to feeling the sense of living in a banana republic and to the point ben made about how totalitarianism is basically the norm in human history um that's incredibly that's an incredible blessing. That's something that we take for granted, honestly, um, as a population, especially people who grew up in the 80s and the 90s and arguably the peak of all human civilization. I mean, my goodness, how lucky are we? Um, and 
there's a, a a book out by Thomas D. Williams called The Coming Christian Persecution. Um, we see things all of the time, uh, not just anecdotally, but we do see, um, you know, the the masterpiece cake, the um, Baroness Stutzman, all of this stuff popping up over the course of you know the last ten ish years, and we, we, we sort of have seen the unraveling of uh, Christian protection under the First Amendment, uh, Jewish protection, even Muslim protection under the First Amendment, um, you know, basically just Orthodox traditional faith, uh, faith traditions under the First Amendment. And uh, I think from a Christian perspective, what's so important about Easter, which is a holiday celebrated with nothing but joy, um, just the, from a Christian perspective, just complete um, joy and hope um, we can remember as we enter this incredibly dark time, uh, at least by the, the relative perspective of people who grew up in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, you know, that, that Jesus Christ is risen um, and that our hope is not in this world. Uh, it's just an incredible blessing uh, to, to, uh, to have. And I think that's one that should get Christians uh, through uh, persecution. Uh, the, the Gospels in the New Testament are just filled with um, the, uh, the ability to find joy even in persecution, um, to give thanks always um, in every situation because we have the, the hope of Jesus Christ. And so uh, for Christians, uh, the, the sense that maybe we've entered a less secure era um, not just, you know, politically, but as you try to live out your faith, um, that's, you know, understandable and in the scope of human history, not unusual. Um, but all that is to say, it's an incredible relief. It's a burden um, off your shoulders, a weight off your shoulders uh, when you go into Easter Sunday and are reminded so beautifully and so joyfully um, at your your service or in your community. Um, hopefully both uh, with family, um, that our hope is not in the world. And that is very real and wonderful. So uh, the now that we have the, the two sort of faith perspectives on this uh, wonderful Holy Week, and we can have these conversations here in America still, thankfully, uh, the government hasn't cut off this Zoom feed uh, yet. Maybe next year they'll they'll jump in, um, or the Chinese government will since it's Zoom. But on that note, I'll, I'll toss it back to Inez as the, as the host here. Yeah, and, and uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna do a last round here of final thoughts. If anyone wants to to jump out with their uh, their first final thought here, I mean, I mean, I will just round out the religious sermon aspect of this show. Um, ben, I, I I think you did a good job. To be clear, I think you were like half expecting me to say like, no, you butcher. No, you did a great job there. I thought that was really good. Um, the only thing I want to add to the Passover discussion, um, Passover has always been my favorite Jewish holiday. Um, in the same way that. Thanksgiving has always been my favorite non-Jewish kind of just general American holiday. And I think they actually stand for a lot of the same propositions. And it's like, a, it really is kind of almost a fundamentally kind of NatCon kind of sense. We think about kind of Thanksgiving as paying homage to those who, who, who did great deeds in the past, ultimately paying thanks to, to God Almighty. I mean, what is right there in, in the Passover Haggadah? What is right there in the Pesach other than giving thanks to God Almighty? That's the famous Dayenu song. If he had, if God had, if Hashem had only done this, it would have been enough. If he had only done that, it would have been enough. 
very kind of striking resemblance to kind of um, the general kind of thankful kind of overtones to the more secular Thanksgiving liturgy, if you will, um, the general kind of the general kind of just kind of familial, familial kind of, um, you know, big festive meal around the round table aspect, obviously. Um, so I, I, I love Passover. It's always been my absolute favorite holiday from a Jewish perspective. And then you also kind of have to kind of incorporate the idea that the literal point of of the of the Passover Seder is to kind of uh, instill and inculcate certain values, yes, but really just the actual passing on of an oral and written tradition from one generation to the next. If you, if you, if you think back, kind of putting back on my more constitutional law hat for a second, if you think back to kind of the the words of the preamble of the Constitution and the way it ends is um, with a vow to, quote, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. You know, it's very easy to see the, the resemblance there of talking about kind of the, what are the blessings of liberty from an American perspective? What are the blessings of liberty from a Jewish perspective? Obviously, without the exodus from Egypt, um, you know, led from Moshe Rabbeinu and Hashem, without that, we would not have ultimately had Shavuot and the forming of the Jewish nation at Har Sinai. So, you know, the Passover is obviously indispensable to the forming of the Jewish nation, but it is really just a fundamentally conservative act in a, in, in a deeply profound way. Of kind of of kind of retelling a story, retelling traditions, customs, and for that reason, if I recall correctly, I think um, you know years ago Dennis Prager kind of wrote a column or an essay. I, I think my memory serves me correctly here. He wrote he wrote something kind of um, directly analogizing, uh, basically basically saying that America needs its own Passover Seder um, each year, and you know Thanksgiving dinner is the closest we have to that, and that's why I've always gravitated to both of those holidays. Yeah. Um, so I, I I think I recall that Prager column, and I think it was basically trying to form a catechism around July 4th um, right. and Thanksgiving that, that told the American story in the same way that Passover tells the Jewish one. Um, so I, I think that that actually that suggestion has a lot of a lot of merit. Um, I think he even included some four questions, you know, call and response kind of stuff, but simple, simple things. But a way of of sort of passing on unique American heritage in uh, a sort of annual way around family and friend tables. Um, but my final thought is more political, which is uh, so the the indictment um, is is happening down the street for me. It's about half a mile away. I mean, I've been hearing helicopters. Hopefully, they haven't made it into the the broadcast. But you know, helicopters from the news coverage and so on, sirens. Um, but and and my husband Jared is out reporting for the Daily Signal uh, in in that crowd. But um, he just described it to me over text message as frisky, but not dangerous. Um, I, I think it's worth noting, and, and we don't know for sure yet because the day hasn't come to a close yet. Um, I think it's worth noting that I think the average Trump supporter uh, has internalized that the rule of law, especially in blue cities, is not going to protect their right to protest. Um, I think there's a reason that there won't be like the huge kind of crowds that that showed up for January 6th, uh, given the the major deficits in due process uh, that the January 6th defendants have have faced, including very long pretrial detention and so on. Ben has uh, written at length and talked at length about that uh, for this for this podcast. I think it's both a correct uh, and yet sobering realization that um, I think the, the average Trump supporter, an average American 
uh, understands that that protesting, uh, particularly in a blue jurisdiction, uh, on behalf of Donald Trump is is actually an activity that has the potential to get you thrown in into jail and put in pretrial detention and and not given your due process rights as an American. So, um, with that with that sobering uh, thing, that's my final thought. So I'll give it to the rest of you to close it out. Yeah, it's 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 worth noting that you know that that sort of act can go down as domestic terrorism now, literally. And this is yet another prior restraint on speech and another aspect of the evisceration of the First Amendment, right to peaceably assemble. Now people have to think twice about it if they hold the wrong beliefs. And on that note, let me just say, you know, Josh was absolutely right to emphasize reverence for God and his blessings. And it's worth noting, I don't know that I can put it better than you know, Tucker has in recent weeks, but he's talked about the idea that there's a fundamental divide transcending party lines, class, and everything else that divides Americans, which is those who essentially believe in man, then the power of man and man's greatness, or those who believe in God, something more fundamental. And I do think that is a an accurate paradigm through which to view it. And again, you know, I hesitate to try to draw parallels between holidays and what's going on in the here and now. But it's worth noting, of course, that in tyrannical regimes, when they seek to take power, the first thing they have to do always is go about persecuting the faithful because the faithful do believe in something that transcends their own rule, something more fundamental and deeper and and who harbor a competing ideology. And tyrannies cannot let there be any competing ideologies, particularly one that's driven by a faith which is more powerful than anything decreed by man. And so I think, you know, obviously we can talk about political views and obviously and religious views, but you see, of course, this regime comes down on religionists as well as those who hold the views that are rooted in ultimately Judeo-Christian faith. Those are the first ones to be to be come down upon and to face the wrath, precisely because it's a danger for people to believe in God over the rule of man. And so ultimately what is needed at the end of the day, courage in spades, because we are in for, in my view, ever tougher times. When we talk about the crossing of the Rubicon here, you know, at many points, and we're gonna look back in this history, sort of like when you go back to the history of when did progressivism really start to take hold and when was all lost essentially in the takeover of all of our institutions. You can obviously look back to Michael Flynn as being maybe the first domino to really fall, where you had FBI agents saying they didn't think he lied, but then they contrived the case anyway and broke the man and ruined the man. And of course, note, he was in the national security and intelligence apparatus for his career, which was the tip of the spear of the assault on first Trump and then down to the January Sixers. And then obviously look at the persecution of the January six defendants. And the whole point of the exercise, again, is to show you that whether you're the former president of the United States and current leading candidate or the lowliest January Sixer who happened to walk into the Capitol that day, this regime will persecute you. That has a deterrent effect in and of itself. It causes people not only to self-censor and not to peaceably assemble, but those who are really good human beings of character, thoughtful, patriotic, loving, 
to think twice and three times about ever trying to serve in any sort of position or trying to go into any one of these institutions that's been corrupted. So there's a massive corrosive knock-on effect to this, orders of magnitude beyond those who have been crushed. And so the only thing I can say at the end of the day is we're going to need courage in spades among people who love this country and want their children and grandchildren to grow up in something resembling, although it'll be different, what we grew up in, to step up and serve and lead under the most perilous of circumstances that we're all, I think, about to face in the years to come. And and it will be okay. Um, it will be okay. And that's to sort of, we, we needn't reconcile uh, the, the Passover and Easter discussions, but to the extent that we can, what Ben said is such a great point that, and I remember talking about this at the last NatCon, that um, when humanity for technological reasons, right? I haven't mentioned technology on this whole podcast, that's a first, um, when humanity for technical technological reasons started looking um, away from God, as Nietzsche wrote about, and started to lose faith sort of in, in mass, at, at least in the West, and that's creeping elsewhere now too, um, as that started to happen, um, where we started to go to, to a very, very dark place. Um, so when, when we started to believe in the, the sort of human, uh, that humans are, are fundamentally good, that humans um, are in control, not a higher power, um, whatever that higher power might be. When, when we started to get to that point, uh, things unraveled and we're in the midst of that unraveling right now. And so, yes, things are going to get incredibly difficult, um, but they're going to get difficult in the sense that, you know, nasty, brutish and short, right? We're not, we're not out of step with the, um, with the, the sort of scope of human history or with the arc of human history. Um, but we are going to have to be strong uh, in the face of returning to uh, some of these, these different challenges and facing new challenges, um, whether it's AI, whether it's, um, you know, the metaverse, whether it's, you know, just mass um, obesity, all of these things that we're dealing with right now that are because of the, the differences in the way that we live, um, we're confronting some really novel challenges. And, and that's rare, actually, for humans to have to do, but we're doing it right now. Things are, are surely going to get more difficult. I think we're all, uh, none of us are optimists on that point, uh, but we can be optimistic on the fundamental point, which is that we are not ultimately um, in control. And uh, that might seem grim to some, um, but it's a very hopeful thought to uh, some of the rest of us. So on that note, I defer back to our host. And on that, on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.